I started out studying for this message this past week, way, way, way over my head. I don't know what caused it or how my mind landed in this spot, but I spent a lot of time trying to chase it as I was putting the message together. This place where I was drowning that was over my head is actually defined by the term risk assessment. Now, again, I don't know what caused me to go there and start exploring it, but that's where I ended up. And boy, did I end up on quite an adventure as a result of it. You see, when I went on the internet to find a definition for risk assessment, the first thing that popped up was a mathematical explanation for what it really is. Look just like this. That meant absolutely nothing to me. Now, there may be some people here that can speak that language, but I am not one of them. So I looked at this equation, looked at this equation, looked at this equation, and realized at no point is there a plus or a minus symbol in there, and so I knew I was out of my depth. So I clicked off of that and started looking at some other places, found a definition of risk assessment that kind of helped but still left me wondering. This is that definition. Risk assessment is the determination of quantitative and qualitative estimates of risk based on specific, well-defined scenarios and researched risk or threats. There you go. I was still scratching my head wondering what in the world that meant. Well, it was further broken down in some of the things that I was studying based on just the quantitative risk assessment idea. And I know this may mean absolutely nothing to you, but here are the two things that they said are necessary when you are trying to assess a certain amount of risk in any given scenario. You have to answer these two questions. What's the magnitude of the potential loss And what's the probability that that loss will occur? Now, those are the two things that in the realm of quantitative risk assessment, they say are absolutely necessary for you to get your head around when you are looking at any given situation. But it seemed incomplete to me. I didn't know how to make all of that make sense as I was trying to work through all of this. And you'll understand as we make our way into the rest of the message why I landed in this spot. So I knew I was going to need some help. Again, I was, I was way, 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 way out of my depth here. So I called my friend Damon Repine. Now, Damon is probably the second foremost authority on risk assessment of anybody I have ever met in my entire life. The first would have been a fellow named Ron Dandy, who was an elder at the church I interned at way back in Bible college. And Ron did risk assessment for an insurance company that he worked for. I've never known anyone since that spent time in this realm until I had met Damon. So I called Damon and I asked him if he could help me get my head wrapped around the idea of risk assessment. And I thought we might be able to do it on the phone. And he said, I believe I'm going to have to come by your office. More than likely, he knows that I'm just a little thick and slow. And so he decided to pop by the office and we got to spend a a good amount of time talking about it. And he shared with me a number of different scenarios that help you understand what risk assessment really is, both in the corporate realm and the personal realm. So as we went through all of those different things, I was still struggling to really grasp the whole concept. I said, something seems incomplete, Damon, and I don't understand what it is. And he said, it's because you're missing the third element. And he was right. This element is completely missing in everything else I researched. Damon is the only one who verbalized it. 
He said, in the realm of risk assessment, you must answer this question. What's the acceptable level of loss? When a corporation, an insurance company, if you will, puts out all of their risk assessment information, they never publicize the fact that this question was even asked, let alone answered. What's the acceptable level of loss? In everything that I found, in every place that I went, no one ever discussed that until Damon put it out there. Then it made sense to me. In risk assessment, three questions that we have to ask. What's the magnitude of the potential loss? What's the probability that that loss will occur? And number three, what's the acceptable level of loss? Now, the reason I was exploring all of this is pretty simple as we make our way into the rest of the message, not nearly as difficult as trying to understand this concept. I was looking at free will in the Bible and what kind of risk God took when he created that mechanism and placed it within us. So let's go back to the idea of creation and just talk about what that was like. Lord created the heavens and the earth, and you know the whole story, seven days, six days actually in creation, and the seventh day he rested. Well, when it came time to create mankind, in my imagination, I can picture the angelic realm getting wind of the fact that God was going to place a mechanism for free will within all of us, and they set up and took notice. Now, let's just imagine a little deeper that there was a risk assessment department in the angelic realm. Maybe, just maybe, they fired off a memo to God. Here's what I think it might have looked like. To the creator of all, Lord of heaven and earth, from the risk management department, angelic forces, host of heaven, regarding decision for free will. The memo might read along these lines. It has come to our attention that a mechanism for free will has been designed for all humans. We strongly advise against installation as the quantitative and qualitative risks both seem too great. Through exhaustive exploration, we have unanimously agreed that the magnitude of potential loss equals and exceeds the probability of loss. Catastrophic results will follow. Cannot determine acceptable level of risk. Advise alternate plan. So maybe these angels sent that type of a memo to God and said, you need to go a different direction, Lord, because the risk is too great. You don't want to do this. Well, because God is God and he knew the entire plan, maybe he fired a, a memo back to them that looked something along these lines. From Father of all mankind, creator, sustainer of all, savior, redeemer, to risk management department, angelic forces, heavenly host, regarding decision for free will, have considered all options, no alternative found, Moving ahead with free will for all humanity. Acceptable risk, zero souls. Alternate plan already in place. My son will take care of it. Now maybe that's how God handles risk assessment. He figures out exactly what we need and he provides that very thing for us. Because you see, at the creation of free will, when God placed that inside of every human ever created, it did not negate certain passages of Scripture, like this, found in the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I hope you brought a Bible with you today and are planning on using it. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture, we're going to do a lot of teaching, and you need to see this for yourself. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. Some translations say that all should come to eternal life. That was God's desire from the very beginning. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He didn't want anyone to reject him and choose a path that would lead them to hell. Yet he created this mechanism of free will and placed it within us at great risk, completely understanding what he was gambling. He was gambling people, rejecting him. So God figured out a way to deal with it. In fact, he knew before the beginning of time how he would deal with it. His answer is found in the Gospel of John, the third chapter. Why don't you turn over there with me? John chapter 3, verse 16. You'll recognize these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's how God was going to make it work. Even in the face of free will, he would send his Son. Whoever would believe in Jesus, and that means believing that he lived, he died, and he rose from the grave. And when he died... He died for every one of us. The Bible says those that will come to terms with that, that will believe that truth, shall be saved. Those that respond to the teaching in the Bible about that truth will be saved. It's as simple as that. Then, interestingly enough, God knew that once we got into relationship with Him, He was going to have to do something to keep us in relationship with Him. Because you see, when a person becomes a Christian, God does not remove from them that mechanism for free will. He doesn't. As much as we would like to think that he does, he doesn't. It's still there. It is our responsibility to remain in Christ. So God knew we were going to need help with that. He created something else, gave it to us as a gift. It's called prayer. And he told us how to use it. Let's go to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 17, little tiny verse of Scripture that if you will tap it, boy, it can do amazing things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Inspired by God, he writes, pray without ceasing. That was God's determined mechanism to keep us in him. Now, Jesus was the way we would get into relationship with him. Prayer is the way that we remain in relationship with him. And Paul would write it so pointedly. You learn how to pray and don't ever stop. You pray without ceasing. That's how you pray. Persistently, continually, without ever stopping, you pray without ceasing. And by doing that, You will minimize any risk you have of drifting away from the Lord. But you stop praying, the risk is going to go up exponentially. So pray without ceasing. You stay on your knees. You continue talking to the Lord. No matter what that has to look like, don't you stop. That's what Paul's teaching. Because the moment you do, you are in harm's way. I want to take this idea of praying without ceasing and really explore what it looks like in Scripture. In order to do that, we're going to go back to the Gospels. There are four Gospels. They are the good news of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're found at the beginning of the New Testament. Now, a lot of people, when they start reading in the book of Matthew, will read all the way through the Gospel of John in a linear fashion. And at the end of it, they'll say, boy, that was repetitive. 
I read the same things over and over and over again. I heard the same stories. Why did God do that? Well, the Lord had the four Gospels written by four different individuals. And yes, they do contain some of the same stories. But oftentimes, those stories are written from different perspectives that we might learn as individuals and in different seasons of our lives. So we are oftentimes best to not read Matthew through John, but rather to read them synoptically which means to look at what Matthew is saying, then look at what Mark is saying, then look at what Luke is saying, and it's more difficult with the Gospel of John, but look at what John is saying and put all of the scenarios together and read them that way that we might really learn the depth of what's being taught there. Or maybe we'll just see a different perspective. The Lord's Prayer is a great example of why that is necessary. It is recorded in two of the Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke. Now, let me show you how the perspectives are a little different. We will start with the most familiar reading of the Lord's Prayer. It's found in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Here's how Matthew records this. Words of Jesus. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Very familiar words. True? Shake your head yes. Maybe you have those written on a plaque somewhere in your house. Maybe you recited them growing up in Sunday school. Maybe as an adult, you've been different places where the Lord's Prayer has been used and, and the words have easily flowed even from your mouth. This is the most popular version of the Lord's Prayer. But I want you to listen to what Matthew tags on to the end of it. Picking up in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's incredibly interesting to me that at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew would capture the words of Jesus in the realm of forgiveness and put those right underneath this prayer. When Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray, something caught the attention of Matthew and made him say, forgiveness matters right here. Now that is not the case for Luke, and I'll show you that in just a second. So it begs the question for us, why did Matthew pay so close attention to the idea of forgiveness as it is attached to prayer that he would record it this way? The Bible doesn't tell us. Church history doesn't tell us. It leaves us uh, in the realm of speculation to try to figure this out. I call it kind of free-ranging through Scripture. We've got to do a little bit of speculating to see if we can make this make sense. So this is more my opinion than it is anything else. Please honor it that way. But here's why I think forgiveness was such a big deal to Matthew. Because prior to becoming a disciple, you know what he did for a living? He was a tax collector. The idea of forgiveness to a tax collector was as foreign as Mars is to us. Have you ever heard a, an IRS agent sitting down with somebody and saying, well, I see here on your paperwork that you shorted the government $5,000. Don't worry about it. We'll just forgive it. It doesn't happen. You ever heard of an IRS agent coming to somebody and saying, yep, you were 5000 short on your taxes, but somebody else paid the debt for you. Just don't worry about it. No, you don't. Forgiveness in the realm of tax collecting is not an easy-to-grasp concept. 
So for Matthew, it may very well have been that when Jesus was talking about forgiveness, he couldn't get past it. Before you can pray, you better make sure the the ledger is clean. Before you pray, you better make sure that you are squared away with other people. It resonated deep within him, this idea of forgiveness. So he recorded it for us, and he put it in the most interesting of places. Now let's go to Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer and see what he does with it. This is Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Now remember, these are coming from two different perspectives. One does not negate the other, not at all. One is not more accurate than the other. They are different perspectives. Verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now that's how Luke recorded it. But you need to pay close attention to what he tags on to the end. Picking up in verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut. My children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, when Luke was listening to Jesus, it wasn't the forgiveness aspect that he wanted to attach to this idea of prayer. It was the persistence idea. And again, in the realm of speculation, as we're just kind of free-ranging through the Bible, we have to ask, why is it that that was so significant to Luke? Why did he grab hold of that? Well, let's follow the same path. Occupationally, prior to becoming a disciple, do you know what Luke did for a living? He was a doctor. Luke was a doctor. More than likely, he completely understood and even resonated with this idea, this story that Jesus just told because he knew what it was like to have somebody pound on his door late at night needing something. Doctors during those days lived just like that. They didn't have an answering service that said, call back tomorrow between 8 and 5. People knew where they lived. They would come and pound on that door with whatever need they had, and they wouldn't leave until their need was met. There is a strong probability that for Luke, this story spoke directly to where he was at. So he added it to the idea of prayer, put it right after the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, you do it like this. You pound on the door and don't you stop. You ask, you seek, you knock, and don't you stop until the door is opened and you get the response that you're after. Now, isn't that interesting that Matthew would see it through the eyes of forgiveness and Luke would see it through the eyes of persistence? And again, one is not better than the other. When you bring those two together, what you find is that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It speaks directly to what you need to hear in different seasons of your life. Know the Word of God and you will discover that. The Bible's always going to speak to whatever season you're in. 
The Bible is going to speak to your background. If it has to tell the same story from two different perspectives, it will. God will. So that you can hear what you need to hear. In this particular situation, Luke is tag-teaming with the Apostle Paul when he said, pray without ceasing, pray continually. He's saying, you do it persistently. You do it all the time. And you do it in such a way that it might even seem a little bit obnoxious. Let's go ahead and explore that. Go back with me, Luke 11, to verse 8. And listen to how the Bible says this. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The word impudence is really an interesting one. Some translations of the Bible have tried to dress up that word. They've tried to give it kind of a churchy sound and and remove the direct meaning of the word impudence. They'll use words like this, boldness. How many of you have boldness in your Bible? Or they'll use the word persistence. How many of you have a translation that the Bible uses persistence? Those words are really the dressed up, cleaned up version of impudence. You know what impudence means? I've read it over and over and over again in novels and and other works that I've had. And I'll be honest with you, until this past week, I never took the time to look it up and see what it really meant. I wanted to look this one up and find out exactly what the word means. And here it is. So hopefully this will clear it up for you just like it did for me. It means ill-mannered. That's what impudence means. It means ill-mannered. Doing things in ways that maybe your mama would shake her head at. Ill-mannered. So the Bible is teaching that that's exactly how we are supposed to approach prayer. In an ill-mannered way. Knocking on the door over and over and over again until the Lord opens it. Continuing to pray until we get the answer. Continuing to seek until we hear continuing to pound away at the gates of heaven until God responds. And if we have to be ill-mannered to pull it off, be ill-mannered. You do whatever it takes. God is inviting that. Even though your mother would teach you that the proper way to pray is to fold your hands and bow your head and close your eyes, that's praying with manners. The Bible would say at times, unfold your hands, lift your head, open your eyes, and get to pounding on the door, and God's going to respond. Now, we might ask ourselves, and it is a fair question, why does God do that? Why would He tell us to pray with impudence, ill-manneredly? I like the way Greg Pruitt says it. Take a look at this quote. God's insistence that we rely on repeated prayer is not about Him, but about us learning that He is the source of power. If not for having to pray persistently, wouldn't we take credit for God's powerful miracles and completely run ourselves with arrogance? Our pride would lead to the swelling of our heads and the suffocation of our souls. That's a great way of saying it. So God leaves us asking at times, leaves us on the doorstep so that we can't take credit for His actions. God leaves us pounding on the door so that the glory goes where it is supposed to. And rather than us running ourselves with arrogance, God says, I'm going to keep dependence growing within you. This is not the only place in the Gospel of Luke where we find this type of teaching. This isn't the only story that Jesus ever shared to help drive this point home. Go with me to chapter 18. Luke 18, verse 1. 
And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? One of the big mistakes that people make with this passage and the one that we just read from Luke chapter 11 is trying to equate God with the neighbor behind the door, the one who has the bread and the the one that's not willing to get up. Or we try to equate God with the unjust judge. That's a huge mistake. At no point was Jesus trying to say that that's who God is. He was trying instead to get our focus on the ones that we're asking. So as we read these passages, that's exactly how we need to do it. We need to look at it from the perspective of the person on the doorstep or the one standing before the judge's bench. Don't look to find God in that story. You look to find yourself. And in the process of it, we learn that we're supposed to pray with impudence, ill-manneredly. When David, who the Bible records as a friend of God, needed the Lord to respond to him, he didn't bow his head and close his eyes and fold his hands. He threw himself on his face before the Lord and he remained there seven days, waiting for God to respond, praying the entire time. It was ill-mannered. The people around him were trying to figure it out. They were saying he'd lost his mind. He was ill-mannered in his prayer. But he needed God, and he wasn't afraid to go before the Lord that way. At the end of those seven days, God responded to his prayer, and I might add to you, not the way David had wanted. But after the response came, David got up off the ground, cleaned himself up, and sat down and had a meal. He'd received his response from the Lord. But he prayed in this ill-mannered way so that he could hear God. It's not the only time David did that. Have you ever read the Psalms? The Psalms are, for the most part, a record of David's prayers and songs that he wrote. When you get into the prayers of David, you will see impudence over and over and over again as David tells God who he is, lays out his request, and he pounds away at the doors of heaven, waiting for God to respond. And some of them are very dark. Some of them are are coming from the depths of horrible situations in his life. David is praying and praying and praying and thankfully wrote them down so that we could see what this looked like. He was praying with impudence, asking, seeking, knocking so that God would respond. Persistent prayer like this, prayer that is prayed in an ill-mannered way, has a place in our walk with God that we should not ignore or look over, but rather we ought to figure it out so that we can pray without ceasing. You might say, and it would be fair to do so, preacher, why does it have to be this way? Why can't we just tell God what we need and God responds? Well, Pruitt would say that God has made it that way so that he will receive credit for what happens and we won't run ourselves in arrogance. But it may be that the idea of risk assessment will help us understand it 
at a deeper level. It's not just God saying that He is pining for glory, not at all. Instead, He is longing for something else. Risk assessment helps us see what that is. I want to take you back to the Old Testament, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and illustrate this for you. Because remember, during the time of creation, when God decided to put free will in all of mankind, He did it at great risk. It is a gamble that He loses more than He wins. But what He wanted more than anything was relationship with us. He wanted us to respond to His invitations. He wanted us to want to be with Him. And free will is the only way that that could happen. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 6, the Bible says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. This is an amazing passage to teach the idea of free will. Now, you're familiar with the idea of the flood. Noah spent a hundred years building the ark, a hundred years. That entire time, he preached judgment and repentance that would lead to righteousness. A hundred years. Everybody that heard about this big ship being built came to the area and they heard Noah preach the same message over and over and over again. Judgment is coming and you need to repent. There'll be a place on this boat for you if you are willing to pay attention to the things of God and repent of your sin. The Bible would tell us that only eight people got on the ark. Only eight. And those were family members of Noah. They're the only people that responded to the message. Of all of mankind, eight responded. Can you see the risk that God took in free will? Eight responded. But every animal, two of every kind, responded. They got on the boat. Now, why is that? Why is it that all of these animals would come to Noah and get on the boat, but all of these people would ignore the warning? The difference is free will. That's right. You see, in, in every animal, there is an instinctual response. It leads to obedience. The animals do what God tells them to do because God hardwired them that way. All you have to do is watch the cycles every year and you'll see that animals are doing what God tells them to do. But mankind is different. Mankind has free will. It is our choice whether we get on the boat or not. It is our choice whether we listen or ignore. God does not expect us to instinctually respond in obedience to Him, but rather want to respond because that's a relationship. God risked all kinds of rejection that he might have people respond to a relationship invitation. That's what free will is. And having to pray persistently helps us understand that. If God has to leave us on the porch or standing in front of the bench for a while so that we will grow deeper in our desire for that relationship, he will leave us there. And if it requires a little bit of impudence, He's willing to take that. If we have to be ill-mannered before the Lord but relying on Him, God will take it every time. Every time. Because it's the relationship that leads to reliance. And that's what God wants. That's what He wants. And in the process of it, 
he tends to change some of the ways that we pray. He really does. Let me take you on a little map through your Bible, starting in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15, we are almost done. You give me about two minutes, we'll be done. Three, maybe. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, as I explain this to you, I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up here. Here's what the Bible is saying. Whenever a person gives their life to the Lord, whenever a person repents and becomes a Christian, a party breaks out in heaven. The Lord is so happy about that, and the angels are so happy about that, that they start celebrating right in that moment. We got to watch that happen in first service. How cool is that? A party breaks out in heaven because a sinner has become a believer. But once we understand that and we can see the relationship, we find passages like this in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That same joy that God has felt, he wants you to feel and he says, I'm here, I'm ready to respond. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is knock on the door, seek, knock, put it all out there that I might respond. But sometimes God is going to allow us to stay on the other side of the door continuing to knock until our perspective changes and we learn to pray in the relationship. Taught in passages like this in James chapter 4, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Sometimes God is changing our perspective when He leaves us knocking. Sometimes God's wanting us to start praying in a much bigger picture and within the relationship. So He leaves us asking. Here's what that might look like. Maybe you've been praying for a new house and you've found just the one you want, but it's outside of your reach. You've been asking God to give you that house. You've been praying that the Lord would do it. And instead, what God does for you is make you content with what you have. Perspective changes in the asking. Maybe, ladies, you have been praying that God would change your husband and get him to a place where he would actually be the man that you want him to be. So you've been bringing all of his shortcomings before the Lord day after day after day, telling God how he misses the mark over and over and over again. You lay all that out before God. But in your persistent praying, you finally end in a place where you say, Lord, make me the wife that he needs. Let the change begin with me. In the asking, in the seeking, in the knocking, that happens. Husbands, maybe you've been praying that your wife would start to meet your needs, that she would focus on you because it seems like over and over and over again she doesn't. All she sees is herself. So you've been praying that God would open her eyes to your needs. But in your persistence, maybe God changes your perspective to get you to a place where you say, Lord, help me meet her needs with no thought whatsoever of mine that I can become the husband that she needs. And the relationship is healed. It required the persistent praying to get there. Maybe you have a boss that you just really cannot stand. You have no respect for him whatsoever. And you have been praying repeatedly that God would do something, beginning with, Lord, I'm all right with it. If you need to take him or her early, you can just have them. 
because I don't want to put up with them anymore. But in your prayers, you find yourself at a place where you say, Lord, help me shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in his life or her life. Why don't you let me be a a tool for them to become a Christian? Perspective changes. You pray without ceasing. You ask, you seek, you knock. You lift your head, open your eyes, and unfold your hands. And with all the impudence you can muster, the ill-manneredness that your mother would shake her head at, you start talking to God, and you see what happens.